Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. In the year 2157, on the outskirts of the system, far from Alliance control, nine people look into the blackness of space and see nine different things. Joining us today are four people who see four different things in Joss Whedon's cult classic series, Firefly, including Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez. Hey. Research Fellow at Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and co-host of Libertarianism.org's own Free Thoughts podcast, Trevor Burris. Thanks for having me. And a new guest to the show... Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum, Jennifer Huddleston. Jennifer, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Ever since we started Pop and Lock, everyone has been saying, oh, you got to do Firefly. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself how I've never seen the show, knew literally nothing about it. Uh, so who wants to be the first one to enlighten me on why we're discussing this show today? Because I'm still not so sure. I'll weigh in on that uh, to start. I have given libertarian lectures using Firefly as an example, uh, in particular one aspect, which I think we'll get more into, which is the difference between centralization and the frontier. Uh, and so much of the show is defined by the extent of the government and how its capabilities. Uh, it's, it's interesting because I remember when it came out and when it did come out and they were putting commercials on Fox, I hadn't watched Buffy yet. So the fact that Joss Whedon did Buffy meant nothing to me. And maybe Julian or Jennifer remember this, but like, I remember the commercials being pretty bad uh, because they really played up this, the space Western aspect. And if you generally say like space Western, you're like, eh, that kind of sounds dumb. Um, but when you see it, you realize why it works. And it's the exact same reason the West was the West in the in American West, which is people moved before government. And when people move for government, they have to figure out ways of ordering themselves. And so you get things like the gold rush in California and Alaska and the general frontier. And that means that it's a, it's a point about, it's a, it's a show about how we govern ourselves and what government does, um, especially on the frontier. I kind of, when friends initially told me about it, had the same reaction that Natalie did. You want me to watch a space Western cowboy drama with, you know, this kind of weird spaceship thing going on. It, you know, it sounds like a very strange concept when you first hear about it. I came to the show after it had already all been released. So this came out in the early 2000s, only lasted a season at, at that. And then we got the movie years later. And one thing I will say is because of the way the episodes and the stories are driven in this particular show, in some ways, it was ahead of its time in that it's an incredibly binge-watchable show. The first time, I, I remember like watching the entire series in two days type of, of thing. And so it really builds the this world and these characters and the, the, the philosophy behind it as well into its whole own universe in a way that really keeps you in trance and, and wanting more. And, and so it's has that same tendency as other sci-fi like Star Wars or Star Trek that once it catches your attention, you, you want to go deeper. You want to know more about the backstories and the other elements of this universe. We should maybe note uh, it's binge watchable like, in part because, right, this is a show that is sort of episodic. Each episode is sort of a standalone story, but is really one continuous narrative that progresses over time uh, in a way that was, you know, not actually that common in the early 2000s, right? I mean, we, now we take for granted that, you know, uh, a, a drama will often be uh, a sustained story over the arc of a season, uh, as opposed to a series of kind of interchangeable self-contained story capsules. Um, but you know, that, that, you know, if you think back to sort of television of the eighties and nineties, um, that was actually pretty rare, um, because, you know, before streaming and kind of easy access to everything and being able to look things up on a wiki, um, you know, you, something had to had to kind of be capable of holding people's interest if they were flipping through the channels and came upon something and had not caught the last episode or, you know, um, and, and had no context for uh, what was going on. Uh, so um, it was it was ahead of its time in that sense, although, you know, not very far ahead of its time. 
also, uh, you've written about this, Julian, and I believe, Trevor, like you said, you've used this as an example in a lot of your libertarian lectures, specifically about the West and the, the frontier. Firefly is very beloved by people in the libertarian sort of community and that movement. Is there anything beyond just the idea of the Wild West of people living without government that is a part of the show or a major theme that you find has really garnered that following within this specific community? Well, even aside from the way that the people live on the frontier and all the different communities that you see throughout the show, the government the alliance is is pretty crappy. <laughs> I mean, like we have we we have you know think about our government. Like you know, we it has a surveillance system that is highly oppressive. It has done experiments on people for the purposes of augmenting its war war making powers, like like we did with Tuskegee and so many other things. Uh, it's it's oppressive for tariffs. You know, they're always getting stopped and searched. There's the one episode where they, they search their ship and it looks like a, you know, fourth amendment nightmare. They're they're turning every single thing over, looking under the table, like, you know, and they have to submit to this all the time. And of course there was a war for submission, uh, which, which is the backstory of the whole show. So all those themes together, like make it very libertarian, which is interesting to me because Joss Whedon is not at all libertarian, but he understands what oppressive government is. But he's, you know, Whedon has, 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 I think, said in interviews, well, I'm certainly no libertarian, but Mal Reynolds is, um, you know, more or less. And you know, this, this is a, I don't think it's that mysterious what libertarians find attractive here. There's a, a show where the heroes are, are all smugglers. Um, so they're, you know, engaging in uh, free trade in defiance of, uh, of attempted regulation. Uh, and then, you know, one of the main characters is a, a sex worker in a time when this is now despite the otherwise fairly oppressive regime, this is now a, a, a sort of respectable legal profession. It's, it's not surprising what, what libertarians find interesting there. And also, you know, I think, and this is something I wrote about in an article for Reason years and years ago, about the sort of existentialist libertarianism of Firefly. Joss Whedon is notoriously um, uh, very fond of uh, existentialism, existentialist philosophy, and has worked those themes into a lot of his shows. Uh, and it shows very strongly in Firefly. Um, I don't know if this is you know, something that specifically libertarians are fond of, the existentialism specifically, but existentialist philosophy has some uh, libertarian undercurrents or some uh, resonances, let's say. The two places where it comes out most strongly are in the the last aired episode, uh, Objects in Space, um, which is, I mean, even from the title, this is a, a reference to the work of, of Jean-Paul Sartre and, and in particular his book, Nausea. Um, let's see, the plot summary, right? This deals with a bounty hunter um, who is prone to these kind of odd philosophical uh, reveries, uh, and who, you know, among other things, describes himself at one point as, uh, having a code and he doesn't, he's chasing river for the government, uh, and is sort of taken over the ship and handily disposed of most of the, uh, the fighting members of the crew it threatens in a, a really harrowing and terrifying scene to rape the mechanic played by Jewel State, uh, Kaylee. And, uh, he says, well, I don't want to hurt people. It's just part of the job to which River, the, the sort of empathic telepathic crew member responds. It's why you took the job. Um, and this is uh, an encapsulation of, uh, Sartre's idea of bad faith, the idea that, uh, in order to evade the sort of terror of personal responsibility, the, the, the kind of frightening dimension of free will that really you could choose to, um, you know, you could choose to drive off a cliff. You could choose to do anything. There's, it is uh, anxiety-inducing to have uh, to have freedom and responsibility. Uh, and so, Sartre's idea of bad faith is the idea of trying to vanish into a role. Um, I, I didn't make this choice. I did this because I'm a soldier, because I'm a police officer, because I, you know, I had to do this for my client as an accountant or as a lawyer, whatever. Um, but but the idea that 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 we attempt to escape from the terror of freedom by trying to vanish into, uh, ro you know, professional roles or social roles, um, as though, you know, we're not responsible then for the things that arise from that. So Sartre is the, uh, is objects in space. And then the movie Serenity, which sort of wraps up the whole series is, I think, and I really don't think this is me reading crazy things into it. It's, it's a speculation that he's read this stuff. He's, he's very into it. Um, and the, if you're familiar with those works, the resonances are 
so, so, so kind of powerful as to be clearly intentional. Um, Serenity is, I, I think, essentially based on Albert Camus' essay, uh, The Rebel or L'Homme Revolte, which is about, well, rebellion in a lot of ways, um, but in particular is talking about, and this is in, you know, in the context of the mid 20th century where a lot of uh, self-declared revolutionaries were uh, essentially communists looking to uh, impose uh, uh, a, re- you know, a regime at the end of history. Um, and th- they believe because this will be the right, the kind of final perfect utopian regime um, justifies a lot of uh, conduct in the here and now that is, you know, most people regard as pretty despicable. Um, and so Camus essay is, is essentially about this sort of puzzle of, uh, well, what does it mean to, to, to want to live as, uh, you know, neither uh, a victim nor an executioner? Uh, neither a slave nor a slaveholder. Can you, you know, can you be a rebel, but not at, without sort of descending into the kind of dark mirror of the thing you're revolting against? Um, and so uh, Camus, and this is what, what actually occasioned his uh, sort of personal split from the, the more kind of traditionally left-wing start. Um, he's very critical of uh, sort of doctrinaire communists um, because of, in part, this idea that, um, you know, justified by uh, the, sort of the perfection of the end of history that you're working to achieve, um, you can commit these kind of atrocities in, in, in the present. Uh, that is very much, of course, the attitude of the operative, uh, the sort of the antagonist in Serenity, um, who at one point tells Mal, you know, I understand I'm a monster. Uh, I'm not, I'm not fit to live in the world I'm striving to create, but it's going to be perfect. And that's what, uh, and that's what, uh, you know, entitles me to murder people and do all sorts of horrible things. Um, what Serenity shows us though is the attempt to create this kind of perfect end of history, um, here through a chemical designed to reduce human aggression, um, backfires completely. Um, the, the government has sort of been testing this on a population, uh, hoping that you can kind of dope people to make them less violent and more compliant and docile and peaceful. And what it ends up doing is half the population becomes so docile they stop you know, eating and drinking and breathing because they don't care anymore. Um, and then a very tiny percent becomes, uh, insanely aggressive and become, uh, you know, kind of space cannibal pirates called reavers. Um, and, you know, and Mal is very, uh, is very clear, uh, you know, I mean, they sort of say this outright. Um, you know, they, that, um, you know, people keep coming around to the idea that you can make people better, um, that you can fix, human nature and make it fit a pattern um, that will make society more harmonious and that this, um, you know, is, such a, is, is invariably a recipe for disaster. Um, so these are all, uh, in a way, I think, you know, themes desi- de- derived from um, uh, Joss Whedon's sort of reading of existentialism, but, or, you know, works by existentialist philosophers. Um, but I, I, it's also, I think, obvious why uh, libertarians would find those themes resonant. I think libertarians have latched on to Firefly and found these themes, but I don't necessarily know that the show was designed fully for this to be a quote unquote libertarian show of, of again, the same way of if someone said, let's write a show about what a libertarian response would look like. I'm not sure that the, the people who go into Serenity and Firefly looking for that, I don't think that's exactly what you're going to see. That being said, there are certainly these questions and themes that often get brought up in kind of libertarian political thought or questions around, you know, how would a, how would a free society or a totalitarian society handle these different questions? What, what are the different philosophical issues that, that arise? We see this often coming up with the various incidents that happen when they're, they're out on a job of, you know, when, when Jane tries to betray, um, to river and river in the, um, hospital and, and things like that. When you have these bounty hunters, a lot of these questions are about kind of different, different ways people handle tough decisions and different ways that, we may see people in uncomfortable situations and how how they handle those as well. You also have characters that may not be considered as libertarian as Captain Mao would be. So I think Book would be a good example of this. Of of he's the the priest. He clearly had ties to the alliance. We find out because of of when he was. 
um, injured and they, they end up on a, a government ship. He's able to get treatment. So I think the idea that this is only a libertarian show or that this show is automatically advocating a libertarian philosophy at times in some of the recent discourse gets a, a bit overblown. So certainly people can watch it and not be libertarians. Uh, and I want to chime in on Julian's point because it's one of my favorite points. And, and again, going back, I, I used to give a lecture I haven't given a few years called New Men for a New World, which discussed the relationship of concepts of human nature as they relate to different political philosophies. Namely, as you have a political philosophy, what sort of people do you think need to be in that system? And pretty much actually, you know, as Aristotle said, like, man is a political animal. Your first question of political philosophy is what is a man? What, what is the nature of, of human beings? Uh, and that comes up in communism, as Julian pointed out, that the idea that we could rewrite human nature, we didn't have to have homo sapiens with limited altruism. We could have homo sovieticus, which was this blank slate thesis. Uh, it came up in Jefferson's thought on the kind of humans that should be living in his version of the United States, his vision for it, which was basically self-sustaining farmers who are virtuous. Uh, it comes up in the French Revolution. When you start trying to rewrite human nature and, and that point in Serenity, that speech where Mao says, they will come back to the idea of trying to make people better. And I know that they will do it again. They will not stop here because that, that is, a, for many people, this question of whether or not, uh, is the, are, we, are the people choosing the government or, or creating the government or is the government creating the people? Like in some sense, like do the, does the government need to have some hand in creating the people in a way that they can be governed? And you could talk about a variety of things in that drug control, uh, public schools or massive uh, what, drugs put into the environment to make people more more governable. Uh, it's a fascinating question and it should be thought of. And, and I agree like that that to me is the, the kind of the most libertarian speech in the entire show in, in, in Serenity where he says they will not stop trying to make us better because in their vision for a perfect world, we need to be a certain way. And that doesn't have to be libertarian. I mean, it, you know, resisting that is doesn't have to be libertarian, you know, but revolutionaries have always done this, right? It, like they've tried and recreated the ground from the ground up and design society, including the people who are involved in it. You know, it's one of my basic, one of my basic precepts I have uh, is don't trust a revolution that resets the calendar. So that would be the French revolution and the Russian and the Russian revolution would be the most prominent ones where they're actually thinking that they can build things from the bottom up, including the people. And that, that theme is throughout the entire show, but definitely in serenity. In, in uh, Camus, the rebel, uh, there's this distinction really between uh, the kind of rebel uh, Camus is very sympathetic to, um, who is in a sense very much pre-ideological. Um, rebellion does not, does not go theoretically much further than, uh, I am a human being, uh, and there are ways that I and therefore any human being ought not to be treated. And so offenses against human dignity and the human person has to be resisted. Um, and distinct, as distinct from, uh, revolutionaries, um, that is people who are not just resisting a perceived depression, but who uh, have a plan, you know, have a vision of how the world ought to be and, uh, you know, want to impose that, uh, want to create a kind of new and perfect society. And he's uh, far more skeptical about that uh, and believes that it tends to lead to horrors. And I think we see, you know, very much in the crew of Serenity um, that uh, that sort of rebellion in Camus' sense. Um, uh, Mel Reynolds is, uh, has libertarian instincts, um, but he's, you know, he's not a political theorist. He says, you know, these are, these are things that are unjust and wrong and I, and I'm going to resist them. I'm going to misbehave. Um, but it's not that he has, you know, some vision of, well, we ought to tear down the alliance and replace it with my better, uh, form of interplanetary government. On that point, the one thing that, goes into this when I'm talking about the what kind of people are we creating or what sort of vision do we have. Firefly also sits into like a sci-fi trope, which you can put in Star Wars um, and many others, Moon is a Harsh Mistress, but probably not Star Trek to some extent, which is its theory of authenticity, which is something I think is super interesting. Like, So the people on the frontier are more authentic, and I think you see it visually that they live closer to the earth. They dress in earthier sense. When you go more central, you see more metal, harder lines, more ornate outfits. You see this in Hunger Games too, right? The people living in Katniss's like province are, are, are perceived and 
shown to be more authentic people than the gussied up people in the central capital who are all beholden to something else. And I think that that's a, that's a theme too uh, that is existential in the way that Julian was talking about. We've talked kind of a lot about Captain Reynolds and what his role is in the show. But while I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, I was wondering like where his loyalties lie. So like, I feel like it was a little bit confusing. Like he is very like protective of his crew and looks out for his crew, but not always. And like, I'm remembering, <laughs> I remembering the time, like when he uh, found out he was getting backstabbed by um, blanking on the guy's name right now. Probably Jane. Yeah, no, it's Jane. Yeah. But then again, he like was like, oh, don't backstab me again. It wasn't like he just like made him go out into space like he was going to banish him from the ship. So I was kind of wondering like where you guys think Captain Mao's loyalties lie and if Serenity, the movie, gave you any more insight to that. We see, you know, we learn a lot about Mel Reynolds in the the two-part pilot Serenity as distinct from the movie Serenity, um, which for unfortunate reasons was was aired later um in in the run uh really should have come first uh but we see you know he's this is someone who actually was uh a kind of an ideologue in a sense first he was a a, a person who who fought for causes he he was a uh commander in this uh war of independence a brown coat uh resisting the the formation and, and extension of, of power of the alliance uh and sees that cause Lose, and we also see interesting that he's he's a uh, a religious person at the time. He's got a crucifix that he kisses before uh, going off to fight, and then watches uh, most of his comrades just be utterly, uh, you know, wiped out by a, an aerial bombardment, and learns that the reinforcements that had been expected aren't coming. Um, and you know, I think the sense you get from that is that this is someone who. Um, but we see, for example, when, when Shepard Book, the preacher shows up, um, the Mal that greets him says, well, you're welcome on my ship if you're paying, but God ain't. Um, so very much in about phase. And this is also, you know, again, someone who, um, does the right thing, you know, at the local level, uh, you know, in, in particular instances, uh, but is kind of done with grand causes until perhaps, you know, ultimately in, in, in the movie Serenity. There's a line um, in Serenity, the line where he says, or I think it's in Serenity about the Alliance. He's like, I have no need to beat them. I just want to go my own way. Like that seems to be for most of it, the depth of his ideology. But at the same time, I do think he is incredibly loyal to the people on the ship. Even if he at times may make comments that indicate otherwise, if you look at the end of the day, he's going to do the right thing by, by his friends, by the people he cares about, even if it means, risk to himself at at times. And I think that is where you do see that that loyalty does lie to the people who he feels he's responsible for in some way, whether it's because they are paying customers or because of his bond with Zoe from having been kind of comrades in the war. You really do see that while he may talk about these kind of you know, Jane backstabbing him or, or whatever, or, or be concerned about the risk associated with different actions. At the end of the day, he does feel that he has a, a responsibility to this kind of society he has created amongst these people. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think the, the scene where he faces off with Jane, Jane, he has clocked out that Jane was trying to sell out the new arrivals on the ship uh, who are kind of fugitives from the government. Uh, and so uh, he decides to he can make a little cash by uh, by tipping off the government. Uh, Mal discovers this uh, after the fact and, you know, cracks him over the head and puts him in an airlock ready to dump him out. Uh, and, you know, they have this exchange where Jane says, uh, well, you know, I understand. It's not like I, you know, you, we just met these people. It's not like I did this to you. I wouldn't have sold you out. And Mal says, you did it to me. Uh, that's what you don't understand. These, you know, these, these people are part of the crew now. So you did this to me. Um, and, you know, I think the, the sense we get here is this is a guy who no longer has, you know, a nation or a cause, uh, no longer has a, a kind of faith community. Um, he's got the family he's chosen on this ship. These, you know, nine people, uh, and, and, but that loyalty is intensely fierce. So Jennifer had 
mentioned and sort of pushed back on some of uh, some readings of Firefly as a libertarian show. So, and, and we sort of came to the understanding that it has a lot of libertarian the- themes, things that speak to libertarians, but it, it wasn't intended to be that way, even if Mal as a character was. And this made me think of another question that Jennifer had sort of mentioned as we were preparing for this episode, which is the sort of dystopian view of the future that seems to be inherent in a lot of sci-fi, which obviously has huge ties to Western, like as Westerns as a genre. Um, why do you think that sort of dystopian view is so prevalent in sci-fi stories like Firefly? And would a, a sci-fi story that existed in a more libertarian utopia be an interesting sci-fi series? Would it be an interesting series if it wasn't science fiction? And is that to do with sci-fi or is that to do with libertarianism and its goals. I kind of want to jump in on this from, you know, the tech policy point of view. I think this is really interesting that most of our views of the future have technology as a bad thing, whether it's the alliance using mind control and facial recognition as a form of surveillance or whether it's Terminator and killer robots or, you know, what, what, you know, that's the most like logical extension or minority report and the ability to, you know, use AI to pre know when somebody's going to commit a crime. We tend to in our fiction classify these technological advancements by what's the worst possible outcome, because oftentimes that can create this kind of friction for the good guys to fight against. But I do think it's concerning in some ways that that's our default in sci-fi is what can go wrong with technology rather than what can go right, because that can spill over to our view of technology in general and lead to us taking a much more precautionary approach. Because if our concern is that robots will devolve into Terminator, that facial recognition will devolve into an alliance-style surveillance state or that AI will lead to the minority report scenario, we aren't necessarily going to focus on the benefits of those technologies. The the fact that there are a lot of positive uses and that that really is a, a worst-case scenario kind of thinking that it's you know, probably unlikely to happen. Um, you know, it's fiction for a reason. On the other hand, it seems that the idea of where the technology all goes right and improves everyone's lives and gradually we see societal changes doesn't make for as interesting television and film. <laughs> there are, there are some kind of exceptions. Um, one of my go-to kind of positive view of technology and innovation movies is actually a Disney movie that no one else seems to have watched called Meet the Robinsons, um, where it's, you know, a, a young inventor who acts in, it, it, through a series of events gets to travel to the future where he actually sees his future self and the improvements that he's made. And, and there's a villain trying to, in some ways, stop this positive future from happening rather than the technology being leading to a negative future instead. So, and just like in, you know, when we look at sci-fi, we don't always see a negative view. We do see really cool technology being used by the good guys as well, whether it's Firefly or Star Wars or, or Star Trek. We all, in general, there's this kind of unease that the, bad guys got this technology that gave them the superpower that the good guys are now having to fight back against. I, I think plotting is, I think a big part just, it's like, I mean, there's obviously a, a tendency to have dystopian sci-fi, but it kind of depends on perspective, right? Plotting is a huge part of this. Like as Jennifer pointed out, if you're going to have people fighting against something, then, you know, that's part of the 
plotting. You know, you could tell a story in the Firefly universe of someone working at an office building in an alliance territory who just has an awesome life and like doesn't really think about what's happening on the outer rim of the galaxy. You know, you could tell a story in the Hunger Games with the same thing. Um, so it's more about who, where, how they plot these things, right. I think. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, in Star Trek, right, the Federation is at least sort of pre-Picard and uh, some of the more recent shows was traditionally always sort of depicted as basically utopian. Uh, we've overcome inequality and hunger and hardship and disease and all these things. Um, um, but that's not where the show is set because that's utopia is boring. Um, so, right, the show is set out on the fringes and on the ship that's exploring uh, new territories at, on the space station that's in the kind of contested region with a, a hostile power on uh, just over the horizon. Um, that that's what makes for more interesting television. The same thing in uh, Ian Banks's uh, wonderful uh, culture novels. Um, the the culture, um, this sort of kind of post human galaxy-wide sort of civilization um, that's sort of managed by AIs, uh, friendly AIs, um, is is basically kind of utopian within the culture. Um, but the novels are basically all about special circumstances, which is their kind of CIA that goes out and does liaisons with other cultures. Um, that makes for, you know, as a rule, more interesting stories. It's, there's sort of definitionally no serious conflicts in utopia, um, right? If drama is, you know, one, one definition of, of drama, right, is um, someone wants something badly and, you know, either gets it or doesn't. Um, and if there's nothing you want because you all needs are satisfied, there's, there's not a lot of dramatic potential there. Um, uh, although, I, you know, I will say in a sense, um, you know, you could read Firefly as a kind of picture of a utopian community, right? Where you have these very different, very different people, um, all kind of living, you know, uh, bumpily, but ultimately harmoniously. Um, the last, um, in fact, the last, the last, my favorite episode of the series and the last one, Object in Space, um, ends with, I mean, it's, it is about ultimately the integration of River, who is kind of neuroatypical because of, experimentation by the um by the the alliance um and uh, you know always sort of in a sense at, at something of a distance from the rest of the crew um who are frankly a little bit frightened of her um kaylee in an earlier episode has seen her um basically you know blind firing uh take out three soldiers with headshots um and so actually finds her kind of frightening so we start with river um you know somewhat disconnected from the rest of the crew um she picks up a uh, something she sees as a branch, but it turns out it's a gun. There are a lot of jumpy cuts um, showing how she's sort of distant from the rest. And then the final shot of the episode in the series is just long, continuous shot that tracks through um, the entire ship and passes by and shows us all of the crew. So now no more jump cuts. Everyone is connected uh, in this really beautiful single fluid shot. Um, so, in a sense, you know, like all of Joss Whedon's show shows, and I think he said this himself, Firefly is about found family more than whatever political themes might have sort of made their way in. Um, and it is in that sense utopian in that it, it imagines, you know, this community of quite disparate people who you might not expect to cohabit uh, successfully um, have found a community together. Um, on this ship, and and maybe that is you know as close to a utopia as as you're going to get in, in in this in this verse. This is kind of a related question, but I was thinking, watching the show, and now that I now that I know the movie is named after this, what is the significance of the name Serenity? Because like to me, Serenity means like tranquility and like. I don't, I don't know. For some reason, I think of like a day spa when I hear the word serenity. Um, but like, was there a significance to that? Because obviously it's the name of the spaceship. And then later the movie that followed quite a few it's years the battle. later. It's the it's battle. The battle. Yeah. yeah. It is which, the battle. Okay. Which is kind of serenity an Valley. irony in and of itself. That, he, that, wait, he lost that battle though, right? Yes. The battle of Serenity Valley. Yeah. But, but there's also, you know, this irony of that serenity, which is a term that would normally be thought of as peaceful and you know the the kind of logical conclusion would be oh he has found peace with this found family on this ship which is one way to kind of read the use of the term it's also associated with something that's the opposite of peaceful with with a battle and not only with a battle with a battle that he lost as well so there there is this kind of interesting juxtaposition in in the way that that is you that 
name is used throughout the series. I think um, there is a little bit of studio intervention, perhaps, in the character of Mel Reynolds. Um, if you if you look at the the character we see in the the, the two part pilot Serenity, um, it is it does not seem like the kind of guy who's making jokes about terrifying space monkeys that we see in the the aired first episode, The Train Job. Um, it, you know, this is a, a much harder edged, uh, more bitter. Uh, less sort of affable, jokey guy um, than we get for the rest of the show. I think maybe the original impression of Mal is that this is really a guy who is still kind of living in that defeat, that um, that loss, and that, uh, you know, not just of the war, but of, of the lives of his comrades. Uh, this has really kind of profoundly embittered him, uh, left him, you know, angry at the universe at God. And um, I think maybe I'm just, this is me hypothesizing. There's a distinct enough difference in the character in those first two episodes and the rest of the series that you, you have to suspect maybe some Fox executives said, could you make your protagonist less, you know, a little bit more likable? Um, because this, this is not, you know, a guy people are going to want to put on uh, posters on their walls. If he's, if he's so bitter, Um and you know I, I, the character as he played out, I think is 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 fantastic. Um, but I think maybe the original image of of him was someone who is um, kind of trapped in that in that battle um, and and shaped by that. I had mentioned earlier that uh, we were going to have everyone tell us what their favorite episode was and give us their thesis statement to why that may be. Um, Julian already gave us his favorite. So Jennifer, do you have a favorite? Well, and I, I think that's an interesting question because the one that I think is best and the one that I think is perhaps the the most enjoyable watch kind of a fun thing are, are two different things. I would say for the the most the most watchable, the one that I would probably rewatch most would be either our Miss Reynolds, where our lovely Captain Mal finds himself accidentally married um, as a result of one of their excursions um, or Jamestown, um, which is kind of an interesting contrast of this character, Jane, who has always been seen as the, the kind of, he's, he's not, he's not the captain. He's this kind of got, he's the one who tries to sell out the uh, river and, and Simon earlier on, like, they end up on this planet and it turns out he's the hero. He's the one who, who is respected as saving them all for something that he thinks was a bad action um, or, or something that he did not expect to, to be appreciated. And so he gets to have kind of his, his hero moment as well. In terms of one of the best um, written, best plotted, I would say out of gas. It is an incredibly, heart-wrenching episode where they think the ship is going to go down and that they are are all going to perish with it. Um, and so some of the question there is, you know, when you when you think the end is near, what what does that mean? Um, what what do you do both to try and save the ship and save the people you love, but also kind of what are some of those conversations that could have. So I, I'm, I wouldn't call it my favorite episode, but I think it's one of the, the best written out of them. Yeah. And I, I, that was be mine. Um, objects, objects in space is, I think clearly the best and out of gas is probably be the second for, for all the reasons Jennifer said. And, and as I talked about before we started recording, I am, a huge fan of the movie. I actually think it's a masterpiece in all the context of what he had to do uh, to introduce these characters to people who had knew them very well and people who had never seen them before. It's just a really fun movie. I invite everyone, you know, just even the first 10 minutes are, are absolutely brilliant the way that he puts forth a really compelling plot and explains everything uh, very quickly. Uh, so I, so if I choose the, the movie as my favorite episode, is that cheating? I'm sad because no one chose my favorite episode. I liked I so it was episode 12 which I don't know if it was a, the original episode 12 but it's the one where um it's the guy that's uh, smuggling human organs and oh, yeah, like yeah, Tracy. uh yeah. And he so he's like an incubator to keep the organs alive so that he can sell them to like the highest bidder, basically. Um, I just thought it, I thought it was interesting, partially because the scenes, the episode started with them getting delivered a 
a dead body, right? <laughs> um, so, I mean, that that caught me. And I also, there was, a, there was a strong quote in that episode that was like, we went to war looking to never come back. And it turns out it's the real world that I can't survive. So... They said that like quite a few times throughout throughout the episode and it kind of resonated. So I thought it was I thought that one was the most interesting. But I guess now I have to watch the movie. So you guys did a good job of of selling it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a fan of Out of Gas as well. I think that's that's one of my favorites and sort of, you know, putting characters in a situation where their back is really, really up against a wall and they have to uh, function in a in a way that um, they wouldn't normally get to use their strengths and sort of get out of situations in ways that they are normal and sort of more predictable. Um, I think that uh, and it, it, there are parts of it that almost it almost reminds me of like a bottle episode in that way and that they're all isolated and it's very stripped down production. Um, and I just kind of love those as sort of separate little avenues that shows can go off on that allow you to sit down and really focus on relationships between characters that you wouldn't normally have the time to to really get. Um, so I think that one is probably my favorite. But I also because it's so like I, it reminds me of watching it for the first time. I really love it. I love the train job. I think it's it's fun. Oh, yeah, so um, do I. Sure. Yeah, it's it's. I see why people were like, this is kind of a a weird one, um, um, and why it may have not actually been what the premiere probably should have been after you know watching them in the order that they were intended to be released in um because i also did not watch it when it was on the air i watched i binge watched it later um but i do i love a good heist story i think it's a one of my favorite genres of of episode or movie or something like that i love i love it when a plan comes together i also love it when a plan falls apart so and and I'm just going to jump in and and say you know perhaps one of the the blessing and the curse of this being such a a short series is I do not think there is a bad episode I I think that they True. all have have their own advantages and and their own moments and then where there's not one I can point to and be like oh skip that one. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. Julian, Jennifer, Trevor, what else have you been enjoying with your time at home? Now, just about a year that we've been at home. Locked In. Uh, well, like like everyone else I know, I've been watching uh, WandaVision, uh, which I think is absolutely fantastic and is, um, in a way, right, the... the f- it's not the first right sort of meta TV show, you know, in the sense of being a show that's kind of about TV and its forms. Um, but it may be the first show that is uh, about television in a world of networked audiences, right? So it's not just about TV itself as a medium. It's about how we engage with television uh, in a world where it's not just you sit down and you watch the show and you wait for the next episode, but um, where you have people going on boards and making reaction videos and having theories about what's going to happen next um, and, and and where you can look up, uh, you know, characters. So you can actually have these incredibly complicated interconnections with this whole rest of the cinematic universe because um, you can go on Wikipedia and figure that out. There's a, a, a point in one episode where... Um, a character who was last seen as like a little girl in uh, uh, the, the film Captain Marvel um, is having a, a heated exchange about where her mother is with a nurse. And it's sort of done in shot reverse shot. Uh, and she's saying, well, where's my mother? She must be here. I, I, I you know, I, I just fell asleep for a few minutes. And then she turns to a nurse and says, my mother is Monica Rambeau. Look her up. And it's a very deliberate choice right to, to to cut there um she's telling the audience look look do you not remember who Mon- uh, maria rambo is um well you know go to a wiki and look her up because you should know how this person fits in the series um it's just a, a, an incredibly smart show that way um i've been reading uh i read the, the most recent emily st john mandel novel the glass hotel uh which is is impossible to um to summarize, really, um, I'll just say I think it's very good. And so, you know, look it up. And, and if it sounds like it would be inter- interesting to you, um, uh, check it out. But it's in significant part about the collapse of a um, 
of a kind of financial fraud of the Bernie Madoff style. Um, but it's about a lot more than that. And it's more interesting than that sounds. Uh, and gaming, actually, you know, usually I say there's some computer gamers and video gamers playing. Uh, uh, my partner and I just looking for ways to, you know, fill time indoors that are not just watching something on a screen um, and, and, you know, uh, are clothed, um, have uh, actually rediscovered uh, a, a game we both played in high school and hadn't really touched in 20 years, uh, Magic the Gathering. Um, which is, you know, a game where you, you kind of construct a deck of, um, uh, of cards that have very different effects and you look for interesting interactions and you try and uh, defeat your opponent to this sort of simulated war between, uh, two powerful wizards. Uh, and it's just a lot of fun. It has enormous variety because there are just tens of thousands of cards. Uh, and you can find all these interesting synergies and, and, and strategies to try out. Uh, and if you don't want to sort of build your own deck, a lot of, uh, online stores will have these pre-built uh, little deck. So you can just get a whole stack of, uh, kind of pre-made decks to start with. Um, and, and, you know, get quite a lot of enjoyment out of that. So I will echo and say WandaVision has definitely been the, the most, the most recent. And we are recording this on the evening, uh, that the final episode will be released. Um, I will also say I cried in episode seven in a way I have not cried since the infamous phrase, I'm a leaf on the wind. Um, <laughs> for, for everyone listening to this who does know Firefly, that, that will have, have, uh, meaning to them. So that definitely, um, the Mandalorian, of course, earlier on in quarantine, but then to take us out of the sci-fi realm, also Bridgerton. Um, and, uh, and yeah, as I say, and the crown. Um, so those are, and I'll even admit to, uh, to Emily in Paris as a, a guilty pleasure. Um, if, if nothing, if nothing else, just for, for the scenery and the, the travel envy these days when we're all stuck at home. Um, in terms of reading, I actually find that I, I tend to read more nonfiction, um, these days, just as, you know, a, a way to explore different places, um, and different, different things, not philosophical, but, um, a lot. I um, have actually enjoyed reading a lot of uh, sports-related books recently. So the last book I read was um, "Win at All Cost" about the uh, Alberto Salazar scandal at Nike running. Um, and then I'm not a big video game player. Actually, it's one of the few nerdy things that I have never fully gotten into. I'm a, a marathon runner, so uh, I more tend to listen to podcasts um, on on long runs than than have video game marathons. But I think they certainly are an art form, and it's fascinating to think about the growing esports industry as well during all of this. Uh, I've been revisiting some old classics, uh, rereading the Sandman comic series, which if you have not read that is pretty much the pinnacle of comic storytelling. Uh, I reread for probably the sixth or seventh time what is probably my favorite novel, which is Anathem by Neil Stevenson. Uh, highly suggest that, uh, if you're into Western philosophy or just really, really good storytelling and creating a world that makes the familiar seem strange. And of course, WandaVision, I will say, I will third that and gaming, uh, cyberpunk, of course. And I've been going through the Metro 2033 series, which is excellent. Uh, it's sort of sci-fi, very good gameplay. Um, I guess I'm the only one who hasn't seen WandaVision yet, so I should get on that train. Um, <laughs> uh, so I recently started Band of Brothers. It's an HBO show. Uh, I don't know how that one slipped through the cracks, but so far it's good. I'm like two episodes in. And then on the book front, I just started reading The Invisible Bridge, which I th think... Trevor, you recommend that? I recommended that. I love that book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I'm really into like World War II fiction books. Uh, I've read a ton of them and that's another World War II fiction book. On the gaming side, I usually don't say anything here, but, uh, the L.R. team just started a Sherlock Holmes, uh, mystery, uh, game yesterday that we haven't been able to finish. Uh, so hopefully we can, we can find out who killed the two kids in London. Uh, so that, that, that'll be the only gaming I'm doing right now. <laughs> I will piggyback off what Natalie said and say specifically, I'm the one, I have the case book that I've been reading to the group as we play remotely, uh, Sherlock Holmes consulting detective, which I think I, I think I discovered 
during quarantine. So I think I recommended it very early on during the one of the episodes. Uh, I will say, if you're curious about Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, all of them are fun. The best box that I would recommend is the one that I think came out the most recently, which is the Baker Street Irregulars. They've streamlined a lot of the mechanics for it and reduced some of the complexities. And I also think it is the most well-written set of cases that they uh, have released. Um, So also the podcast Good Christian Fun, Christian pop culture phenomena from a sort of (laughs) funny, not quite critical lens, but uh, they're, they're not there to convert you or tell you to go to church, but they're also there to laugh and make fun of stuff. So it's basically taking religious movies and TV shows and music and walking them, walking through them with famous guests um, who have some sort of experience with the evangelical community, either growing up or still currently. And they're very funny. So if you understand references to things like uh, Adventures in Odyssey or Mark Lowry or Reliant K or anything like that, uh, you might enjoy good Christian fun because I know I it's I put my head to my hands multiple times every episode because it it speaks to me in a way that a lot of media does not. Um, and the last two things I'll say: two novellas that I've really really enjoyed and blew through super quickly. Uh, Ring Shout by P. G. Lee Clark, which is a sort of magical uh, historical fiction where. In the history of the world, the film Birth of a Nation is actually part of like an incantation that summons a bunch of demons that turn clansmen into monsters. Um, and a bunch of these heroes basically are sort of trying to fight and kill all of these murderous Ku Klux monsters uh, in Macon, Georgia at the time. And they go to Stone Mountain uh, where they're screening the film and there's weird cosmic horror fantasy elements. Uh, and it's really easy to read. It's great. And This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Mukhtar and Max Gladstone. So good. Two warring, time-traveling spies from different factions that start communicating like throughout time with one another and building this relationship. And uh, it's so well-written. It's beautiful, complex, surprising, super easy to read. Um, highly recommend This Is How You Lose the Time War. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock related content and to connect with us is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.